0: Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a week where we are back, people. Summer is over, it is September, there is news, there is business, there is finance. I am Felix Salmon of Axios, I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and the New York Times and places like that. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And the UAW is on strike. There is a big strike going on against all three automakers at the same time. We're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about the Arm IPO, which also happened this week. A big chipmaker worth $60 billion. We are going to talk about the new poverty numbers that just came out. We have a Slate Plus segment on tiny houses. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So this is absolutely wild. The UAW, the United Auto Workers, good old-fashioned old school union, has decided to do something it has never done before. Elizabeth, Mayer writes about this? It is going on strike against all three, I, I guess we can't call them American automakers anymore because one of them is this weird Euro pudding called Stellantis, but all three Detroit automakers at the same time.
1: Yeah, and they're also doing it in a way that they normally don't. They're doing what's called a limited strike. They've walked off of three plants— In Missouri, Michigan, and Ohio, just enough to kind of disrupt the automaker's production chain, but not enough that everybody's out of work and nobody's getting paid.
0: Emily, what do you make of this strategy?
2: I think the strategy is really interesting. From the union's perspective, there's two things. One is it's less costly. So they have about, if they were to strike all the plants and pay out $500 a week to the unionized workers, they probably would have enough money in their strike fund to last about 12 weeks. But now if they're just doing a few plants, they can really stretch that money out. The other thing is, you know, that's very strategic where they've chosen to strike, right? So they're going for the plants that make the Jeep Wrangler and the Jeep Gladiator, Chevrolet, Colorado, like profitable cars, the Bronco. Um, So they're like hidden where it hurts.
0: Tell me the F-150 is one of them.
2: The F-150 plant is not one of them, but we were talking today that maybe they're holding that in their back pocket, you know, to have a big bang like later on. Because the president, Sean Fein, UAW president, has said, like, we could expand, we could do different plants. And it sort of strategically keeps the automakers on their toes, right? It makes it harder to, to plan around the closures. But... On the other hand it also raises the possibility that the automakers maybe will do some lockouts, you know, and start fighting back that way.
0: Just to zoom out a little bit here, are they trying to renegotiate three different contracts at once or is there always just like one big UAW contract that governs all three automakers?
2: But usually they they like pick one automaker to bargain with and then the contract terms, everyone does the same contract terms more or less. So this is different. This time they they weren't just, you know, picking one to bargain with. They're going with all three.
0: But they're, they're like out of contract with all three.
2: Yeah. The contract expired on Friday.
0: Wow. I've heard of uh, people, you know, unions working without a contract for years. And here they are like, well, we've lost our contract for Five minutes, so we're going on strike.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, fain has been saying all along, this is a deadline. We're not going to extend. Because in previous years, they would do like an extension and keep bargaining, right? But this time, he was very emphatic like, that's the deadline. That's when our contract expires, and we will go on strike if there's no deal negotiated by then. It's the same tactic that UPS the Teamsters used against UPS, although, you know, in that case it worked and they were able to avoid a strike. Yeah,
1: also though, I think at the beginning of the week, there was some talk that maybe they would come to an agreement on wages, but there are so many other things that they're negotiating for that, you know, as the clock ran out, it's just, it wasn't going
0: to get done in any case. Mm. Emily, tell me about the four-day week thing.
1: Oh
2: yeah. So the UAW, I mean, they want, their ask was like Forty percent raises, and I think they've come down a bit to maybe like thirty-five now. Um, and they want, you know, restored benefits for retirees. They want cola increases, cost of living adjustments. But one intriguing thing they have on their list of demands is yes, a four-day work week. They want to work thirty-two hours and get paid as if it were for forty. And then I was just like poking around a little and learned that the AFL-CIO also has a four-day work week on its like wish list. <laughs> and then, you know, if it, it sounds kind of crazy. And the one of the auto reporters at Axios, Nathan Bomey, he's not just an auto reporter, he and I think he's a listener too. He was saying... Um, Hi, Nathan. <laughs> he was saying the automakers are just like flummoxed by this demand.
0: That's but a good if you, word. I like that word.
2: <laughs> yeah. But if you pull back... The reason we have a 5-day work week is has a lot to do with labor unions who fought for a 5-day work week, you know, back in the 20th century, and I guess it was Henry Ford who first did a 5-day work week at his company and then, you know, finally became part of labor law during the New Deal era. So unions Got us to five days. Like it's not so crazy to think they could get us to four days. Although I don't think that I don't, I don't think that's one of the demands that probably comes through in the end from this negotiation.
1: Yeah, it's also something that conservatives hate because they view it as just getting pay for an extra eight hours because they still think. Which it,
0: I mean, are yeah. they wrong about that?
1: Well, I think the the overall <laughs> intention of it. Is to pull wages up, and also particularly in jobs that require a lot of physical manual labor to, you know, not burn out or overwork the workforce.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I was doing some more reading and reporting, and, like, a lot of these plant workers, especially the newer ones and the contract workers, are working, like, 60, 70-hour weeks. I mean, it's pretty brutal. Um, So the demand also sort of highlights that, I think.
0: So right now they're getting overtime after 40 hours. And I guess if they went to a 32 hour week, they would start getting overtime after 32 hours. It's not necessarily that they would actually only work four days a week.
2: Yeah. And I just, I mean, that doesn't seem like these companies would agree to that or any company would agree to that. Right. I mean, that just seems wild, but maybe once upon a time getting off on Saturday and Sunday seemed wild.
0: So let's zoom out a little bit more. And the big picture here, as we all know, is that the big three Detroit automakers are unionized and are based in the north. And then the mostly Japanese and foreign automakers are not unionized and based in the south, including Tesla. And this has always been like the great divide in the automaking industry. If This strike starts really hurting Detroit. Is that good for all of the non-unionized automakers?
2: Yeah, probably. I mean, you said always been the case, but I mean, it used to be Detroit had all of the business going back decades, right? And now I think Detroit makes up like less than 50% of all, they have less than 50% of all the auto workers in the US. So yeah, observers think this will be good. For all those other auto work, not the workers, but all the automakers, for, especially for Tesla, but also the foreign Toyota, Honda, whatever that you mentioned, because it could hit the big three's production and there's if there's less cars available. People will go where the where the vehicles are.
0: Is this something that the UAW struggles with at all, that the harder they make life for the unionized automakers, they're really like doing a favor for the companies who won't even recognize the union at all?
2: They struggle with it. I think they've been so militant in their demands, and their long-term worry is the auto workers. The long-term worry is the transition to electric; that they'll get phased out that way more than competition would phase them out.
0: Presumably, electric cars have many fewer moving parts, and therefore require many fewer workers to assemble.
2: Yeah. Well, there's maybe that, but also it's a different workforce and they don't have to be unionized. Some of the automakers do these like joint ventures, and they get away with, you know, not having unionized workers for those joint ventures to make electric vehicles or whatever. So, you know, as they pivot more to electric, they pivot to a different workforce. And the worry and the stress for UAW is like, who's that workforce going to be union workers or not?
0: Okay, so Elizabeth, what's your prognosis here? We want a prediction. Is this all going to blow over relatively soon and there will be a deal within, let's say, a couple of weeks?
1: Uh, I don't know about a couple of weeks, but I think certainly before the, the three months, at which point the strike fund runs out in theory.
0: Emily, would you agree with that?
2: I don't know. I I, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the politics here are really interesting too, I wanted to mention. So we know the Biden administration is very pro-labor but it's also very pro transition to electric vehicles. So it's in this really like weird spot because the transition to electric is this like core issue in this strike with the automakers basically saying like we need to be able to be nimble and to make this transition and spend a lot of money on the transition and like if we give UAW everything they want like we're going to be like hamstrung to do that. And I think that's a convincing argument. A lot of people think it's a convincing argument. But on the other hand, you know, Biden wants labor to get a good deal. So it's kind of like this interesting little tricky spot. And the auto workers, you would traditionally would be supportive of a Democratic president, but not one that's trying to make their industry a little obsolete. So it's just a very tricky thing.
0: I feel like there's a sort of Small C conservative weird alliance here between the UAW and that other very stuck in the mud group of real like Republican conservatives, which is the auto dealers. And that none of them mm. are looking forward to this move to electric vehicles.
1: Well, also, mm-hmm. the, the Biden administration has been very reluctant to step into union negotiations. And the one exception to that was the train worker negotiations a while back because that would affect the entirety of the US transport system in as much as rail is responsible for it.
2: Well, they were able to step in on the rail negotiations because there's like a federal law that says that said they had to essentially do something the railway labor act and there's not that kind of law for automakers and the administration has been involved behind the scenes. They say they don't get involved in negotiations and sit at the table or anything like that, but they're, you know, they're talking to the parties. And I think the fact that Biden's been so supportive of unions is playing some kind of role here, even if it's not like, you know, even if the administration's not like sitting at the table, it's important that the president is supportive of unions. In fact, on Friday, the chamber of commerce put out a statement blaming Biden for the strike. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know, do with that what you will.
0: I do remember back in 2009 when Steve Ratner was appointed the auto czar and got super Mm. involved with the unions because there was this big fight between unions and bondholders, basically, about who would get the value of the automakers. And that was like incredibly aggressive White House intervention to the point at which the White House was basically dictating the terms of every deal. It seems that the... Biden administration is very different from the Obama administration in that sense. Although the difference being, of course, that in this case, the automakers are profitable and they're not losing huge amounts of money.
2: Right. And in the past, I mean, they just engineered this big bailout for the automakers. So, of course, they were like very involved in the terms. Although the Biden administration has spent a lot of money on, I think, grants and loans not 100% if it's grants or loans, on electric vehicle initiatives, giving them to the automakers. So, you know, they are putting a little bit of money there to sort of make it easier for things to happen.
0: Let's move on and talk about Arm, which is the biggest IPO of the year. It was roughly $5 billion that SoftBank raised by selling 10% of ARM, if they had sold a slightly more normal percentage of ARM, which in most IPOs it's 20%, they would have doubled that. And it seems clear looking at the stock price that there was perfectly lots of demand in the market for those shares and they could have doubled it. So really big deal, really big chip maker, absolutely astonishing valuation, like compared to its peers, it's being valued at crazy multiples. Everyone's saying this means the IPO market is back. There's a bunch of, you know, froth and greed and happiness and animal spirits in the stock market. Do you buy that, Elizabeth, or do you think Arm is a very sort of sui generous, unique thing and we're going to have to get through things like Instacart before we can really make any judgment about the stock market as a whole?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a benchmark. I think the excitement around Arm really has to do with AI hype, now chip makers and adjacent companies are benefiting from the idea that they're going to be instrumental in new AI developments.
0: Yeah, this is one of these theories that kind of intuitively makes sense that, that, you know, there's a bunch of demand for ARM stock and there's a bunch of AI hype, and therefore it must be the AI hype that's driving the demand for the ARM stock. I have yet to find anyone who can really explain to me why ARM is particularly well-placed to capitalize on the ai boom but why not anything's possible right
2: yeah i mean i think they also in addition to like ai glow they have chip glow and and people are into chips lately ever since the pandemic right even even though i think the issue and the and the supply shortages they've been resolved i think there's still this feeling of like chips (laughs) we need them they're very important and that maybe helped a little bit too And though this isn't like a sign that IPOs are back necessarily, like you guys said, I mean, it's good that it didn't do poorly. Then we would have been on the show saying, IPOs are not back. (laughs) Right? (laughs) IPOs are terrible, you know, so it's not like a terrible thing.
0: There was a lot of speculation that this IPO would just fall on its face and it would fall off a cliff and it would be a complete disaster. And that very much didn't happen. There was a nice, healthy first day spike and the valuation is way above the top of the, you know, indicated IPO range. Lots of people want to buy the stock. A bunch of, you know, people like Apple are holding on to large chunks of stock themselves. They're very happy to own it. And there just seems to be a yeah a bunch of like positive sentiment around this company in a way that is quite rare, I have to say, for SoftBank backed companies. I can't remember the last time a soft bank company got this much sort of Everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that's actually a really good company. We're going to bid it up." <laughs> Normally, it's the WeWork narrative.
1: Yeah, I think the buyers are just ignoring the fact that it's a SoftBank company.
0: So this is the interesting thing, right? You get you get zero control if you buy stock. It's not like the shareholders have any say in how it's run. Ninety percent of the company is owned by SoftBank, and masasan the the guy, you know, the owner of SoftBank, the, the founder of SoftBank, has said very explicitly that he doesn't want to sell any of those shares, the 90% that he owns for like decades to come. So this is, you are buying a SoftBank owned and SoftBank controlled and SoftBank run company. And SoftBank is run by Mao Zedong, who is, to use a word I I had in my newsletter this week, weird. (laughs) We've (laughs) we've talked about him on the show in the past. He's a weird guy. So you're, you know, one has to assume that somewhere in this, you know, $65 a share, share price or wherever it is that Arm is trading right now is actually some kind of Massasson discount. And that without him, it might be trading at even higher levels.
1: That could be true. I also think it's just a sector bet. You know, if you're putting money into chips right now, you might want mm-hmm. a little bit of ARM in your portfolio.
0: Yeah, there, are, there aren't that many. I mean, really, there's only one chip maker in the world. It's TSMC. ARM doesn't make chips. It makes chip architecture. But yeah, even chip true. architecture is apparently worth $60 billion.
1: So, the Inst- Instacart IPO is coming up. Do they have any kind of advantage in the way that Arm does? Or they are they're, you know, piggybacking on excitement around the sector?
0: As as hard as it is to explain the connection between Arm and AI, I can tell you there's no connection between Instacart and AI. <laughs> I don't think they're going to get any, like, you know, chat GPTs to go running around Safeways to pick up no. olive oil. The business of Instacart turns out to be fascinatingly good. One of the things I didn't realize is that the prices you see on Instacart are generally about 13% higher on average than the actual prices in the supermarket. And then on top of that, there's all the delivery fees and the extra weight fees and the alcohol fees and the tips and all the rest of it. And I can't remember the exact number. I saw an estimate this week saying that if you buy $78 worth of groceries, like groceries that would cost you $78 in the supermarket, you wind up paying about $132 for those groceries if you get them on Instacart. You um, wind up yes. getting paying a 40% <laughs> premium. So these customers are really valuable. And you can see why people might want to own Instacart.
2: I just want to interject and just echo what you just said, Felix, because I just had COVID. So we used Instacart to order like some groceries here and there. I think I bought like, I don't know, like five bananas and some Gatorade and maybe some oranges because I was <laughs> sick and delirious and I didn't know what I was ordering. And it was like $70. Like it was crazy. <laughs> when I came out of the fever and looked at the receipt, I was just like, what have I done? Like just on principle, crazy, which I think is a one downside to this like smart business where they can charge so much is like no one's going to use that every week because I mean, you'd have to be really bonkers to pay that much more
0: but isn't that the idea that they've they've managed to find that group of price insensitive slash bonkers people who don't actually (laughs) mind paying 132 dollars rather than 78 dollars because they have enough money they can afford it this is the sort of airline seatification of grocery shopping. You know how, like, the person sitting next to you on the airplane never paid the same amount for their seat as you did, that it's all about trying mm-hmm. to segment the population and get the people who are willing to pay more to pay more? Like, they've worked out how to do that with airline seats, and now I guess they've worked out how to do that with grocery shopping.
1: Well, also, it's, it's a, oh, wow. I think, a function of when when people need something right now. You know, you can get sometimes mm-hmm. Amazon same-day delivery Sometimes fresh direct same day delivery, but you know if you if you need something like within the next few hours, where do you go besides places like Instacart? Uh,
0: the grocery store.
1: No, I mean if you if you cannot leave your house.
0: But I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, think if
1: everyone in your family has
2: COVID and can't go to the grocery store.
0: I'm skeptical that the core Instacart customer base is people who cannot shop for groceries on their own. I think it's just people who are doing something else and they're like, yeah, you yeah. know, I'll just order it on the internet because it's easier and more convenient
1: it's like a reworking of the cosmo.com business model That for whatever reason oh,
0: Cosmo. i loved what was it called urban fetch yeah i used to use urban yes. Fetch all the time and they had free delivery and it was like they lost so much money on every delivery and i was so happy to lie in bed on a sunday morning and get like my sunday new york times and a bunch of bagels and cream cheese delivered and it was like free <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first dot-com boom that was amazing
2: to bring back up ARM again. So the FTC blocked NVIDIA from buying ARM, I think in 2020, because they said, you know, it would be anti-competitive.
0: And that's how SoftBank managed to snap it up at less than NVIDIA was willing to pay.
2: Yeah, and now ARM is a public company. I mean, 90% owned by (laughs) SoftBank, but still a public company.
0: Well, SoftBank is a public company too.
2: Oh yeah, so it's a public company that's standing on its own with a multi-billion dollar, valuation and NVIDIA, we know what happened to them, like their stock is up by like, what, like 500% or something since the AI boom kind of got going. So now there, it looks like the FTC did the right thing. That was good that they didn't let NVIDIA buy ARM. Or is it just like neutral to the market? I, I was curious what you guys thought.
0: I would agree with that. I mean, I am not an expert on chip architecture, and I don't know how more powerful NVIDIA would be, if it had, if you know, what kind of synergies there would be there. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. insofar as NVIDIA's argument was like, we need to get bigger in order to survive, like, clearly that wasn't true.
2: Yeah. So, I don't know, it seems like, I feel like companies complain a lot when the FTC or the DOJ blocks these mergers, but I mean, this sort of a reminder that it's probably fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Emily... We should also talk about the big statistical release of the week, which was really one of the biggest statistical releases of the year or even the past couple of years. What was it and what did you find in it?
2: Yeah, so the census put out data on the poverty rate and on incomes. And the big news, the big headline from this data drop was that the poverty rate increased like a lot. It increased to 12.4% overall from 78 And child poverty more than doubled. This is from 2021 to 2022. And so that was like the big headline. Then if you drill in, you realize we're talking about the supplemental poverty rate, which takes into account government benefits, non-cash benefits. So think like SNAP benefits, food stamps, AKA, and of course, the child tax credit that was going strong in 2021 and other pandemic benefits. So when those got pulled away, poverty rates spiked. So when this news broke earlier this week, you know, a lot of Democrats, progressives, they were like, poverty's a choice. And, you know, in 2021, the federal government chose to, like, do something about it with all these benefits. Then Joe Manchin <laughs> they disappeared. Joe Manchin wouldn't vote to continue them. And so it's Joe Manchin's fault that poverty is soaring. So that's kind of what happened.
0: As a European, this makes perfect intuitive sense to me. In any society, there are going to be people who fall through the cracks, who can't necessarily support themselves. And it's the job of a civilized society to support those people and make sure they don't live in complete poverty. And the United States has historically been very bad at that for like ideological and various other reasons. And then there was this weird, short-lived moment when it wasn't. And we came out in the name of fiscal stimulus in the face of the pandemic, which was okay, fine, whatever. And we were like, we can prevent poverty and we can basically slash it in half. And that's what happened. And the way you do that is by giving poor people money. You know, if you spend money on poor people, then they have money and then they're not poor anymore. This is really basic stuff. And then when you stop doing that, then they fall back into poverty because they never had any money to begin with. So it seems incredibly intuitive and obvious and what you're saying is correct. That if the government gives poor people money, then they're not in poverty, and if it doesn't, then they are.
1: Yeah, and the the underlying right. ideological assumption is that if people are in poverty, that they've done something to deserve it. I wrote about Mansion saying when the expanded child tax credit was on the table, Mansion said something like, "Well, you know, if we give people money, they're going to spend it on hunting trips and drugs or something like that." It's, and that it's, that is it's the
0: empirically completely false, but rhetorically it does have political salience, like that message does resonate with voters, even if it's just completely wrong. it's just not true. It's just not true, yeah. uh,
1: There was this Canadian study that came out a few weeks ago where some economists gave people who'd been homeless for a short time, meaning like less than a year, $7,500, and then they tracked how they spent it. And they said, you know, not only did it help a lot of these people get housed, they spent it more efficiently and wisely than people who are not below the poverty line.
0: Well, of course. You give me $7,500, I'm going to blow it on all manner of random you know, luxuries. <laughs> <I'm not laughs>
2: What's interesting also is that if the census also releases another poverty measure, the official poverty rate, that doesn't take into account those benefits. And if you look there, poverty kind of stayed flat. And for one group, for black Americans, the poverty rate fell. They're doing much better in 2022. So I thought that was kind of interesting. the, The
0: underlying economy is still good for lower income people. The labor shortage is still tightest at the bottom end of the income scale. And people who've historically found it very difficult to get work are finding it much easier to get work and to get paid a living wage of, you know, $15 an hour or more. And that has been great for, you know, improving the lot of the working poor, for sure. And that hasn't gone away.
2: Yeah, that was really striking to me and encouraging when the supplemental, that measure was just so, wow. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's more like poverty got a little bit better, actually, under the hood. It's just that for one year, we made this, the US made this decision to be like a European country and then... Came, I guess we came to our senses, and we're like, "Wait,
0: this we're, is America." We're typically, Goddammit. pretty
2: cruel to poor people.
0: What are
1: we <laughs> doing we here? People back <laughs> to where they were before the pandemic.
2: People have too much money; they can afford food, and that's wrong.
1: Yeah, another thing complicating <laughs> all of this too is just that you know these measures are not terribly precise, and so you know Peter Coy had a good piece in the Times about how these things are calculated. And there there are certain things that just are not terribly well reflected in the measures that we use, and one of them is healthcare and associated costs.
2: So can you say more about that? Do you remember how he laid it out in the piece?
1: He said that the cost of health insurance, to use it as part of a measure, both of the measures that we do use don't take into account certain things that really drive people into poverty, and one of those things is healthcare expenses, and whether or not you're insured makes mm. a huge difference. And so even adding in the cost of being uninsured or having to, you know, self-insure, which is much more expensive than if you have an employer who picks up the cost, makes a meaningful difference in terms of determining whether a household is below the poverty line.
0: Right. So they have a bunch of income, but it's not really disposable income because they need to spend it on not dying. Yeah. Right.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that can really throw you into poverty fast. I mean... Not dying for you. Yeah, I mean, once,
0: once you're dead, you're no longer Republican. dead. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the one. one no, you're
1: fine. <laughs> that, that, there's a Republican <laughs> bill somewhere <laughs> <laughs> that suggests that as a policy solution.
0: I think we should have a numbers round before we continue along this path of things are uh, getting dark exploration. Elizabeth, let's start with you.
1: My number is seven hundred fifty thousand, and that's dollars. And that's the amount that a company called Command Education will charge to try to get your kid into Harvard or Yale starting in seventh grade.
2: What? How does that work? $750,000?
1: They do this sort of extreme tutoring and curating your extracurriculars. There, there's one example where they helped a kid get a patent on sneakers that charge batteries. It's all very highly customized, you know, rich people stuff. And wow. is this
0: like an upfront fee that you pay, and then they're with you for the next ten years, or?
1: How, uh, that's how? not clear. But uh, the guy who <laughs> runs it said that uh, one of the parents at Trinity School, which is a shishi private school here in New York City, once offered him one point five million dollars if he would agree not to work with any of his child's classmates.
0: Wild!
1: <laughs> Whoa! <laughs>
0: because the kid was like competing against his yeah. classmates. Like a Don't you want your classmates to go to university with you? Isn't that like something that would be do? Well, you, I think the, the elite
1: schools will only take so many students from, oh. you know, the same
0: school. Oh, like Harvard's like, we already have three Trinity kids. We can't yeah. have a fourth. I mean, I do remember reading an amazing article. I want to say maybe it was in The New Yorker. About a woman who worked for Ray Dalio. And the way that he tactically gave multi-million dollar donations to every single University that any of his kids might conceivably want to go to, on the grounds that, like wherever they wanted to go, then at that point it was obvious that you know there was a long history of donations. Then and he would totally go stick accept. up
1: the fundraising wow. committee at
0: whatever school. Yeah.
2: yeah, very meritocratic system that we have here.
0: My number is ninety-three thousand. That is the number of dollars that. Alex Jones contrived to spend on personal expenses in the month of July.
2: (laughs) Wow. In
0: one month, including, get this, $7,900 on housekeeping.
1: What is he doing to his house? (laughs) What? (laughs) For one house? I
0: don't know. It could be for more than one house. How big is this house? I don't know. It could be like, I don't know how many houses he has. There was also like, he has to pay to keep up his boats. Anyway, the <laughs> point being that this guy is bankrupt. He is in uh-huh. bankruptcy. He has a $1. Sure. $1. $1.5 billion judgment against him. And in these cases, I've known people in bankruptcy. You, In normal bankruptcy court, you are incredibly tightly constrained on what you're allowed to spend because your creditors have first claim on all of that money. And somehow, Alex Jones is going around spending $93,000 a month.
2: Do we have to say who Alex Jones is? to, to listeners know?
0: I kind of don't want to, but okay, Emily, do do the dirty. He is.
2: Uh, I don't he is a uh, Elizabeth. You do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, he's a right-wing conspiracy theorist who runs an internet show called Infowars, and most significantly, was sued by Sandy Hook parents for spreading conspiracy theories that the Sandy Hook shooting didn't actually happen. And that's part of the
0: reason why he is, so, in theory, bankrupt right now. Well, he is bankrupt yeah. right now.
2: Good guy, in yeah, other
0: words. Good, yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on from Alex Jones. Emily, what's your number?
2: Dun, 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 nah. Here's He's the story uh-huh. of my oh, number. Oh, the Brady
0: Bunch house. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How much did it sell <laughs> my for? My number
2: is $3.2 million. That is, yes, Felix, you have guessed correctly based on my song. <laughs> That is the sale price of the Brady Bunch house. HGTV paid in 2018 $3.5 million to buy this house. And they spent $2 million renovating it. They added 3,000 square feet. They added all the, you know, all the stuff that makes it look very, very Brady, the wood paneling and the floating staircase and all that stuff. But I guess no one really wanted to spend... Five something million dollars on this Brady Bunch house. So it got purchased for 3.2 million by the wife of the former HBO studio head, Chris Albrecht.
0: Where is this house and how many square feet does it have?
2: Great questions. Um, It's in Studio City, California.
0: So that's in LA, right?
2: Yeah. And I believe it's about 5,000-ish square feet. But the quotes in the story from the buyer or the realtor, someone said something like, no one actually wants to live there. And the woman who bought it just plans to, you know, use it for parties and events. And I would suspect Airbnb, because maybe people will want to stay there for like a few nights. Yeah, there was
0: a whole discourse around the travails of living in famous houses. And, you know, like, Where they interviewed the poor people who were living in that apartment on Bleecker Street where Taylor Swift used to live. And they're like, it's terrible. We're Mm. just constantly surrounded by Swifties. And I can kind of see how you wouldn't want to live in a tourist attraction.
2: Yeah. And I guess the homes in the neighborhood typically go for around the three million price point. So, like,
0: this one sold at a discount. Exactly. Also, who needs 5,000 square feet? That's just too many square feet.
2: Well, I mean, if you have three kids from one marriage and three kids from the other marriage and a live in housekeeper, then you need it.
0: Fair point. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for keeping the emails coming on slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to the amazing trio of Ben Richmond, Patrick Fort, and Jasmine Molly, who between them have managed to put this show together. And we will be back on Monday with the Slate Money Criminals episode on Elizabeth Holmes.